Well, if you're new with us, uh, we have been walking through a series uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you on that table over there. If you didn't grab one on your way in, there's some black hardback ones. Uh, Go ahead and go grab one of those and keep that. That's our gift to you as a church. We really want you to have a copy uh, of God's Word for yourself. But 1 Corinthians 2, the first five verses is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And uh, I've, I've told many of you this story before, if you've done a partnership interview with me, and I think I've talked about some of this up here before as well. But before I felt like God was kind of calling me into this, into vocational ministry, uh, pastoring and being a preacher was really the last thing that I wanted to do. Uh, I've always been a really, really big introvert, and public speaking has always been my greatest fear. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew that I definitely did not uh, want to be doing this. Uh, But uh, during my freshman year of college, towards the end of my freshman year of college, the church I had grown up at asked me uh, to serve as the summer youth ministry intern. And one of the things that that had meant in the past is that youth intern had always preached a sermon on Sunday night at the end of the summer to the church, uh, and that definitely was not going to happen for me. And so uh, I met with the youth pastor and I said, hey, I'm willing to do this. I'd love to get to do this and serve in this way. As long as you know, uh, I'm not going to be a pastor and I, I refuse to preach that Sunday night sermon. Like that is not going to happen. And so he was cool with that. Uh, and so we agreed to that. And I got started serving in the internship and was really enjoying it. And uh, as that summer went on, at the same time, my grandpa was serving Uh, It's kind of like a transitional interim pastor at a a smaller church in the same city, had about 15 to 20 people. Uh, And so he asked me if, hey, why don't you come and preach for me uh, at this church at the end of the summer on a Sunday night? And and by that time, God had begun to kind of stir up some desires towards ministry in me, and I'd started to begin to wrestle with, maybe maybe God is calling me into this. And so I agreed to do that, thinking, you know, hey, this is just 15 to 20 people. Like, I'm never going to see these people again. If I totally bomb this and this goes horrible, uh, we can all just kind of forget it and act uh, like it never happened. Uh, And so I agreed to do it, and the day to preach that first sermon came. And like I said, it was a Sunday evening service. And so that afternoon, uh, I was in my bed in the fetal position, uh, begging God, like, God, is it, would it be wrong of me to just say that I got sick and that we need to cancel the service? Like, it, it, is it wrong? Is it too late for me to just call my grandpa and say, like, I, I physically cannot get up and do this. Uh, I, I'm just not going to be able to go through with this. You're going to have to preach it yourself or cancel or find somebody else. I cannot uh, do this. And, and so after about an hour of wrestling with that, I finally got up and uh, ended up going through with it. And I preached that sermon and it was an awful sermon. Uh, I basically just put my head down and read my notes for like 30 minutes straight uh, in a perfect monotone. And uh, so it was terrible. And unfortunately, uh, we still have a recording of that sermon. And so uh, if you ever think like, man, he seems like he's getting kind of arrogant or he's really starting to get a big head, just reach out to my parents, ask them to send you the recording of that sermon because it's going to do a few things. Uh, one, it's going to humble me really quick. And two, it's going to cure any insomnia that you might have. Uh, and so uh, it just wasn't very good. But even after that, that, that nervousness really didn't improve. The second time I preached, uh, I, I pulled a Jake from State Farm and decided to wear khakis, which was a really bad decision uh, because I was so nervous that I had visibly sweated through them before I even got up to preach. 
Uh, it was so, so bad. Learned an important lesson that day uh, that has served me well since then. Uh, but even after that, like the next 10 to 15 times I preached probably, I, I just remember I would read through God's call to Moses in Exodus 3 and 4 about how God calls Moses to lead his people, and, and Moses says, I can't do this. I don't speak well. And God tells Moses, hey, who do you think made man's mouth? Don't you think I've got you? Don't you think I can handle this and equip you to do this? And I just read that, and I would plead with God to help me and to give me grace and to give me strength because I was just so nervous that I didn't know if I was even going to be able to get the words of the sermon out. Now, thankfully, uh, over the years, as I've preached more and more, those nerves have lightened up a little bit. They, they definitely have not gone away. If you see me in the back over here, uh, kind of mumbling to myself or walking up here, kind of mumbling to myself before the sermon, that's usually me uh, praying some desperate prayers, trying to get those nerves to come back down. But uh, thankfully, they're not just kind of crippling uh, like they used to be. And, and so, I'll tell you, like, as much as I never want to go back to those early days of, of learning how to preach and just dealing with such uh, extreme nervousness, there is something I miss about those early days of learning how to preach, and it's that I, I never had the temptation to rely on myself, like, ever. I mean, I was just so aware of my deficiencies and my inability to make anything important happen uh, that I was just totally dependent on God, just pleading with God, like, God, you've got to show up here. You've got to do something because I'm not going to be able to make anything happen. I mean, just, I'd plead with God for hours before a sermon, God, give me grace. Please do something here. Please show up because I'm not going to be able to get the words out if you don't help me here. I miss that because honestly, now, to my shame, like I, I do face the temptation sometimes to think, you know, I, I've done this quite a bit. Like, I, I, I can do this. God has gifted me for this. It's just, you know, it's just getting up and talking to people. Like, I can handle this on my own. I, I face the temptation sometimes to rely on my gifting and my study and my preparation and on myself instead of on God, and that's wrong. Because if 1 Corinthians 1 told us last week that the gospel that we preach is a foolish and a weak message in the eyes of the world, what Paul's going to tell us here in these first five verses of 1 Corinthians 2 is that it has to be preached in a foolish way as well, in weakness, in a way that shows everybody listening that the power for change is not in the preacher, but in the gospel that is being preached. And so we're going to talk quite a bit about preaching this morning, about why we do what we do, why we do this every week, what, what we think it is, what it's supposed to look like, why we think uh, it's so important, and what we think God uh, is doing in this moment. And so let's do that together now. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to read uh, the first five verses. Starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So three things I think we see here in this passage. I think Paul tells us what we preach, how we preach, 
and why we preach. And so let's think first about what we preach. Uh, last week, Paul told us that uh, in, in the eyes of the world, most people in the Corinthian church weren't all that impressive uh, or successful, but God had loved them and chosen them and set his favor on them to uh, display his glory so that they would boast in Jesus together and not boast in themselves. And now, here in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul turns to himself and he says, hey, as for my part, I didn't come preaching to you in a way that was any different than that message that I preached. Like, I didn't come preaching to you in a way that made me look impressive in the eyes of the world. I didn't come preaching to you in a way that made me look wise or smart. I didn't come to you boasting in or relying on myself. No, look again at what he says in verse 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I boasted in Jesus. I boasted in the cross. Now, listen, we've, we've said it before. I'll, I'll just say it again. As we walk through this letter, you'll see Paul talks about a bunch of different things other than just explicitly Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so what I don't think Paul is saying here, uh, he's not saying he just kind of showed up to Corinth and got up and said, hey, God is good, uh, and He made everything. He made you to have life and fellowship with Him, but you and I have rebelled against that. We've tried to find life outside of Him. We are sinners that stand under His judgment and need a Savior, but God has come in the person of Jesus to come and live the life that you have not lived and die the death for your sin that you deserve to die and rise from the dead to forgive give you and give you life with him forever. And if you'll turn from your sins and turn to him, he'll do that. He'll forgive you and give you life forever. And then just kind of uh, sat down and didn't say anything else. Now, instead, I think what Paul is saying is that he centered on Jesus and the cross. He, he made the gospel his main message, and even when he wasn't explicitly talking about Jesus and the cross, he was tying everything that he was talking about back to the gospel, showing us how Jesus fulfills it and empowers our ability to walk in it and how Jesus uh, changes things. Maybe the best way to, to summarize the distinction between Paul saying, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, I think Paul is talking about the difference between preaching good news and preaching good advice. Uh, there's a lot of preaching that's really centered on giving you good advice. And it makes sense because we all kind of long for this. We all want to be practical and helpful, right? And, and Man, we all kind of come to church just by nature thinking about, uh, I want to have the, address, at, at the issues that I'm facing addressed. I want to have the problems that I'm dealing with. I want to find a way to fix them. And, and, like we all want to be better spouses, better parents, and on and on and on. And so what often happens uh, is that this type of preaching begins to sound a lot more like Dr. Phil or Oprah. Like it's a lot of good advice. There's just not a whole lot of Jesus in it. And so it becomes, hey, here's five ways to win at work this week, or here's four ways to improve your marriage, or here's a couple ways to get your kids to start listening to you, or here's how to get control of your finances, or here's how to conquer your fears or your anxieties, and et cetera, and et cetera. And, and often in these sermons, Jesus will make kind of a quick cameo. He'll make kind of a wave and an appearance at the end. You know, they'll say something like, uh, of course, you can't really do any of this stuff without Jesus, and Jesus wants you to be a better parent. He wants you to be a better employee. He wants you to be a better spouse, and so you should follow Jesus, and he'll help you with these things. But even when Jesus makes an appearance in good advice sermons, he's being treated uh, much more like an example than as a savior. 
Like we follow his example and the principles that he has laid out, and that makes us better, happier people, and the focus is still all on us. That's good advice preaching. Uh, In contrast to that, what, what Paul is saying, he decided to know nothing among you except, and what we want to focus on is good news preaching. We want to center on the reality of the gospel, the reality that we are great sinners, but we have a greater Savior, Jesus, who has come and has lived the perfect life in our place that we have not lived, died the death for our sin that we deserve to die, rose from the dead to give us life with Him forever, that God is the source of all good who made us to share in and enjoy that good and fellowship with Him, but we rebelled against that, but God did not leave us to ourselves. He did not leave us in our rebellion. No, He came after us to get us in Jesus, and Jesus has come and has done the work so that if you'll turn from your sins and turn to Jesus, God will save you, He'll adopt you into His family, and you'll get to experience joy and life and communion with Him forever. We want to proclaim that good news every week, every time we get together. In a lot of ways, I want you to feel like we really just have one sermon that we're preaching from a different text every week. I want you to kind of be thinking like, man, this again? Like, yeah, this again. It's really, really good news. And, and notice again, and, and what I'm not saying here uh, is that there's nothing besides the gospel to preach. Like the gospel does have implications and applications, things that we're called to live out and respond to and walk in obedience as a result of what Jesus has done for us. But what I'm saying is that the power to do those things always flows out of seeing the beauty and value and worth of Jesus in the gospel. Like every real step of obedience to Jesus that you and I take flows out of a love for Jesus and a trust in Jesus that stirred up and is grown by seeing his glory in the gospel or it's just not going to last. And and notice again, look at verse 2. Paul says he decided to do this. That this was an intentional, conscious choice. That he could have talked about other things, but he decided to center on Jesus and the cross and be a good news preacher instead of a good advice preacher. And listen, this has to be a conscious decision because our flesh longs for good advice. Like, I long for good advice. I mean, we all want to know how to fix the problems in our life and address the issues that we're facing. And it seems so much more practical and immediately relevant to come to church and and hear some advice that you can try to put into practice in your life the next day as you go throughout your week, especially when the preacher is a good motivator. Like, I've heard sermons like this where the preacher is a good motivator dispensing a lot of good advice, and I'm left thinking, yeah, I can do this only to get four, three or four days down the road and realize, no, I actually can't do this. Like, good advice preaching, it sounds so good and practical and helpful and relevant in the moment, but it does not work, and it does not last, and it cannot actually change us. Good advice preaching would be like putting you in a car with no engine and screaming at you, go, push down the pedal harder, why is the car not moving? Like, there's no power there. And so, like Paul, I've tried my best to just frustrate our desire for good advice preaching every time I've had the privilege of being up here, and I've tried to center on the good news. 
Because look, the reality is that you can be the best parent and a great employee and make a ton of money and go on great vacations and really have a pretty happy and successful and fulfilled life and not have life with God. And I don't want to give you anything less than God. I want you to know God. Because look, I have just pushed all my chips in on the belief that if you actually see the beauty and the worth and the value of Jesus in the gospel, that over time that sight is going to change you more deeply and more lastingly than any practical advice that we could give you because that sight is going to begin to reorder and change the desires of your heart. Like, look, I know, I know it feels so impractical sometimes, like, Man, like, uh, this is nice and all. Yeah, Jesus is cool, but, but like, what do I do? I, I just believe in Jesus. I look at Jesus. I get my heart and my mind and my eyes on Jesus. Like, that's it? Yeah, in a real sense, that really is it. Because listen, your actions and your behaviors always follow what you love most. Like, you are going to go after what you love most. You're going to sacrifice to get more of what you love most. You're going to serve what you love most. And the more you will grasp down in your guts that you don't have to go out and define yourself. You don't have to go out and make a name for yourself. That you don't have to earn an identity for yourself because the deepest truth about you now is that you're someone who is loved and has been saved by Jesus. That you're a beloved child of God that cannot help but begin to change you. And look, the more you're just captivated with Jesus, the, the more those temptations that you face are going to increasingly begin to look more and more like trash. Like, why would I want to dumpster dive outside of a McDonald's when a five-star restaurant is offering me a free five-course meal? I just want more of Jesus. And so we've done our best to just focus on that and try to give you more of Jesus. Because this is what Paul is telling us that we're called to preach. We, we want to preach good news and not good advice because Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the power and the wisdom of God. And that leads to the next issue that Paul addresses in this passage, which is how we preach. And we should preach in a way that puts the focus on God's power and wisdom and not our own. Look again with me at verses 3 and 4. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So when Paul says he was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling, um, I really don't think he's being hypothetical here. I don't think he's doing like a metaphor. I don't think he's being false humble either. Like I think he's being honest and saying, hey, you saw this. You saw that I was weak. You saw that I was afraid. Acts 18 tells us about Paul's time in Corinth, and it tells us that he was being rejected and reviled as he preached in the synagogues, and that this was happening, and that it seems like he was afraid and wanted to go to a different town because God, in Acts 18, appears to him in a dream and says, hey, don't be afraid. Stay here and keep speaking. I'm going to be with you. No one's going to be here to attack you or to harm you because I've got many people in this city called by my name, that I'm going to save through your preaching. And so it seems like Paul really was 
afraid. He had been beaten in previous places that he had preached. He was being rejected and reviled in the synagogues here. And on top of that, uh, he didn't look like the popular Greek orators of this day that he was walking into Corinth with. I mean, remember, I told you last week, this is the hotbed of ancient philosophy. Like these people are just swimming in Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, who literally wrote the book on speech and rhetoric because, man, beyond just philosophy, like speech and rhetoric were really the entertainment venue of the day. You didn't go to the movie theaters, you went to the amphitheater to hear somebody give a speech. You can see this in Acts 17 when Paul goes to the Areopagus and gives uh, his speech in Acts 17. It says that the people there would spend their days really doing nothing but listening to whoever had something new to say. And, And so good public speakers really were the celebrities of this day, but, but in contrast to all of those, just like Paul said that our gospel is not that impressive in the eyes of the world, and, and just like most of the Corinthian church wasn't that impressive in the eyes of the world, he says, I wasn't that impressive of a speaker either. Now look, Paul's not giving an example, uh, not giving an excuse for preachers to be lazy or to be bad preachers. In Acts 14, uh, he's preaching at Lystra, and the crowd uh, names him Hermes because he's the chief speaker, and they begin to try to worship him. And so he's not giving an excuse to be a bad preacher and saying, you've got to be really boring and terrible at this if the Spirit is really going to work. No, what he's saying is that he, he didn't look like the public speakers of the day that they were used to. Uh, He didn't come to Corinth projecting a ton of confidence in himself. He didn't walk into Corinth with a swagger. He didn't walk in looking like these other orators uh, because that would have put the focus on himself. And so Paul is saying he made sure to preach in a way that, that kept the attention on Jesus and not on himself. Because what 1 Corinthians 2 is saying, he's saying if we preach a foolish gospel, it has to be preached in a foolish way as well, in a way that does not make you leave the message focusing more on the messenger than on the message that was preached. Because look, there's, there's a way to preach that makes the preacher the hero instead of Jesus. And, and so Paul's saying, I just refuse to preach in a way that would win applause for myself and distract from the glory of Jesus, because he wants to preach in a way that makes clear where the power for change is coming from. He didn't want him to trust in them. He wanted him to trust in him. So I I have not read uh, Cicero's book on rhetoric, but I've read people who have read Cicero's book on rhetoric, because you want to work smarter and not harder, amen? And uh, they all kind of talk about how ancient Greek rhetoric was really focused on getting your audience to have whatever response you wanted them to get to by any means possible. And and so you would kind of affect your voice and affect the content of your message and, and a lot of times use manipulative techniques to get them to the desired response and result that you wanted to get out of them. Uh, you would, and the best public speakers were those that could kind of have the audience on a string that could take them wherever they wanted them to go and get them to that desired result. 
And on top of that, it seems like a lot of what would happen is that the way you would do that as a speaker is really present yourself as an expert and hold yourself out as an example to trust that if you want to do this, you follow me, you trust in me like this. And so when Paul is saying that his speech and his message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, he's saying he rejected all that manipulative rhetoric and he just clearly preached the gospel. He just laid it out as simply and as plainly as he could so that when any transformation happened in the lives of the Corinthians, it was clear that that change was happening because of God's power working through the gospel message, not Paul's power to persuade and motivate them. What Paul is saying is that we ought to preach in a way that when lives are transformed, when marriages get restored, when people get saved and and baptized, when friendships are reconciled, that we ought to preach in a way that makes it clear that that transformation is happening because God is the one doing the work, that the preacher is not making that come about. God is the one making that come about. And, And so how should we preach? Well, I think Paul is telling us we should preach in a way that puts the focus on Jesus and not on ourselves. Uh, Because once again, there's a way to preach that makes the preacher come off sounding really good and kind of leaves Jesus as an afterthought. Uh, This happens when every illustration is is about how awesome the preacher is, and they kind of hold themselves out as the end point and the goal of the Christian life that you're trying to get to, that if you really want to be a good and faithful Christian, then you need to get like me. And listen, I'm not saying in this that pastors aren't called to be an example. They explicitly are in 1 Peter 5. But what I'm saying is that there's a way to preach where you leave the sermon thinking, man, Ryan seems like such a great guy. And he just seems like such an awesome awesome husband and such a faithful Christian. I really want to be more like him instead of leaving the sermon and thinking, oh my gosh, what a great God we serve. Like, how incredible is he? I want to trust him. I want to follow him. I want to look more like him. And so listen, I'll just tell you, like you, you need to test our preaching by this. Not, hey, it, are they keeping my attention? Are they making me laugh enough? Do they keep me engaged? Do they give me enough advice to go home and try to put into practice? But is this good news or good advice? Is this making the preacher the hero or Jesus the hero? You need to test the preachers and teachers that you listen to on podcasts by this as well. Is this making much of Jesus? Is this giving me more of Jesus? Is this growing my faith in the preacher or growing my faith in God? Because that leads to the final thing that Paul talks about in this passage, why we preach. We preach so that your faith would rest uh, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Look again at verse 5 with me. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So this is really where everything in the text has been leading. We focus on Jesus Christ and Him crucified and put the focus on Jesus and not ourselves so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, would not be in our wisdom, but would be in the power of God. You see, we preach every week, and preaching has been such a staple of church history for really the entire history of the church because God has put His power to transform lives here in a special way. Like God has chosen to use this weak, foolish, ordinary means of preaching to be one of the primary vehicles that He uses uh, to grow His people and change their lives. 
I mean, this is kind of foolish. Like, think about it. How is somebody getting up and talking for 30 to 40, sometimes 45 minutes a week? Sorry about that when that happens. But how is that going to change somebody's life? Especially when we as preachers are really not that impressive and not that special. And but, but, but Paul is saying that, that God has put His power here. Preaching is a big deal because God has put His power here to speak to us and reveal Himself to us uh, in a special way as we gather together. Like when we gather together, Jesus is speaking to us through His Word to reveal Himself to us in this moment. Like that's what this moment is for, and this is where God's power is. And look, the whole movement of 1 Corinthians is telling us that God's power is not here just if we can be good enough speakers or if we can do this well enough. No, through the foolish message of the gospel and the foolish, ordinary way that it's presented in preaching, God sees fit to change people's lives and transform them. This is one of the primary means that God uses in your life as a follower of Jesus to make you look more like Him. And so because God has placed His power here to transform in a special way. This is not the space for life hacks. The preaching moment is for Jesus. And once again, like it's not that there's nothing besides the Gospel to talk about. It's not that there's nothing else to focus on. But, but the danger is, as we talk about all those different things, that we could focus on those different things and never get around to talking about Jesus. Never get around to centering on Jesus. Maybe the best way to ask the question and to make the distinction is, could all this stuff still be preached the same way if Jesus had not come and died for our sins and risen from the dead? Like, does Jesus being alive right now make any difference for what we're talking about here? I had a preaching professor who, when he was talking about this text, he says, whatever you most value in this moment, in the moment when preaching takes place, is what you're going to put your faith in. Like, everything in this moment is about faith. What will you look to? What will you trust in to transform you? What are you going to look to 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 make that change uh, when this happens? And, and, And that means that, like, listen, it's not just that you're passively sitting and receiving here. You need to understand there's a spiritual war going on right now in your heart. Like this moment for you is about faith. What will you trust in? What will you look to? And you see the danger and the temptation for us is going to be to look to something other than the gospel to change us. You see, my temptation is going to be to get bored with the gospel and to feel like, man, this is just kind of ordinary. It's just the same old, same old. This isn't really working anymore. We've got to spice this up and do something different. Your temptation is going to be the same, to get bored with the gospel and to start to look to something else. Did he make me laugh enough? Did he keep me engaged? Uh, Did he give me enough practical advice that I can apply to my life? Uh, That's going to be the temptation that we face, but you and I have to fight that temptation. I have to fight it as I preach. You have to fight it as you listen, because whatever we most value in this moment, what we win people with is what we're going to win them to. Like whatever we most value here in this moment is what people are going to start coming for. And, when, and if it's something other than the gospel, as soon as that thing is not here anymore, as soon as it isn't relevant enough, or as soon as it isn't practical enough, as soon as it isn't good enough, they're going to leave because their faith was not in the power of God. Their faith was in that thing. 
I mean, because notice again what Paul says in verse 5. He's preaching in this way so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Like, if we get up here and we just give you practical advice, do you know what your faith is going to be in? Your faith is going to be in our ability to sufficiently motivate you and in your ability to sufficiently go home and put these things into practice. And look, I'll just tell you, we're not that good of motivators and you're not that good of an applier. Like, I don't want your faith to be in our wisdom or our life experiences or our advice. I want your faith to be in Jesus. H.B. Uh, Charles is a, uh, a pastor and a preacher in Jacksonville, Florida, who I'd, I'd recommend to you, but uh, way back when, I think this was in the 90s, uh, his dad had been the pastor of a church in Los Angeles for uh, either close to or over 40 years uh, when he died unexpectedly when H.B. was just 15 or 16 years old. And so this church searched for over a year looking for a new pastor and eventually decided to call H.B. as their pastor, even though he was only 17 years old. And so they called him as their pastor, and at his installation service, another preacher in the area in Los Angeles named E.V. Hill uh, came and preached his installation message, and the title of his message was, What Can That Boy Tell Me? He said he had heard members of the church around town talking about H.B. and talking about the fact that he was going to be their pastor and, and saying things like, What can that boy tell me when my marriage is in trouble? What, what can that boy tell me when I've got problems with my kids? And so he preached for a while to basically get to the point of saying, well, he can tell you whatever the Word of God tells, you, tells him to tell you. You see, it didn't matter that he was only 17 years old and didn't have the wisdom and the life experience uh, that the congregation had. What he had was the Word of God, and that's enough. Because that's what we're called to give you, the Word of God. And that's enough. Like you, you don't need our wisdom or our life experiences or our advice. You need to see and hear from God. You do not need to trust me. You need to trust God. And so we're going to do our best to just keep trying to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, to keep the focus on Jesus so that when God unleashes his power in your life to change you and transform you, your faith would not rest in our wisdom or our abilities or our advice. It would rest in the power of God. Let me pray that it would. Jesus, thank you uh, for this news that uh, even though you have chosen uh, a weak and foolish means of preaching uh, to be the way that your gospel goes forth, I got it. You put your power here in a special way to save and transform. And so, God, I pray that this would be true, that uh, like you have and like in your grace you're going to continue to do as you move and you transform and you save and you change people's lives in this room over time. God, would you do so in such a way that it is incredibly clear that you are the one accomplishing that and that none of us are the ones accomplishing that, uh, that our faith would rest in your wisdom and power and not our own or not anybody else's. God, I pray you would do that among us. Would you help us uh, to do that? And would you fill us with grace to be able to do that? In your name, amen.